I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The 2018 midterm elections are coming up, and it's time to delve into constitutional history. What do the framers expect that congressional elections would look like? What have they looked like over the course of history? And are there parallels to our current times in the past 200 years? Joining us to discuss the constitutional and historical dimensions of the congressional midterm elections are two of America's leading experts on Congress, congressional history, and elections. Matthew Green is professor of politics at Catholic University and author of The Speaker of the House, a study of leadership, as well as a forthcoming study of Newt Gingrich. Matthew, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. And Thomas Mann is senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He has written extensively on Congress, and his many books include the invaluable and best-selling The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track, co-authored with Norm Ornstein and many other works. Tom, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure, Jeff. Um, Matt, let's jump right in. Are there historical parallels to the current midterm elections? And what did the framers expect that congressional midterm elections would look like? Well, it's uh, probably a, a little early to say exactly what uh, previous midterms are similar to the one that we are uh, about to have, since we don't know what the outcome will be. Um, but in terms of public engagement in the election and the potential for a um, change in power in uh, at least one chamber in Congress, we certainly have seen that before in congressional history. And in fact, I would say it's one of the factors that uh, distinguishes uh, ordinary midterms, you might say, from ones that we would consider significant. So a change in party control. And also if there's a large swing in seats from one party to the other and you have a lot of new members coming, which could happen in this election, um, that is also something that uh, we have seen before and often makes a midterm significant. Um, you know, the, what the founders intended isn't exactly what we have today for a number of reasons. Um, one of which being that uh, we now have popular elections for the House and Senate, whereas initially senators uh, were appointed by the states, by state legislatures. And so they were somewhat more immune in a way from the electoral tides that can influence the House. Um, then, of course, the House, you have elections every two years. Uh, and part of the, the idea there is that they're closer to the people and in that respect, more directly connected to what voters would like based on um, you know, in, in, in a given election and, and where a senator is serving for six years, they have more time to legislate and focus on, uh, on matters of policymaking. Thank you so much for that. Tom, same opening question to you. Are there historic parallels to the midterm elections of 2018? And what did the framers expect from congressional midterm elections? No obvious parallels, but uh, certainly some interesting uh, midterm elections that we can discuss. As Matt said, the uh, the framers really had the House as the only body that would be directly elected by the public. The, the president was to be chosen by electors, uh, who, who in turn were appointed by uh, the states. And 
and uh, Matt explained these uh, the appointment of uh, of senators as well. Are there also was no mention of political party in the Constitution, and and uh, uh, if you look today, uh, we we have coming up an election in which the framers would be aghast. <laughs> One, of course, they talk constantly about the fear of a demagogue without the requisite Republican virtue emerging in the system and tried to set up a structure of institutions and incentives that would uh, prevent that. Um, uh, but right now we're, we're facing a situation where um, we have the most demagogic-like occupant of the White House in our, in our history. And, and the question of, uh, of this midterm is, is, the, is one of the checks the framers had in mind uh, for protecting the system and the rule of law that is the election of a, of a new Congress, uh, is that going to be up to the task uh, that's set before the American people? Thank you for that. All right, Matt, Tom just made a provocative point. He said that the framers intended Congress to check demagogues. Do you agree with that point? And then let's go back to the 19th century. You have identified a series of important 19th century elections, including, as we were talking before the show started, 1826, 1854, 66, 74, 94. Give us a sense of how some of those important 19th century elections functioned and whether you agree with Tom or not that they were supposed to check demagogues. Well, I think Tom has a point, and I, I would actually expand it to say that uh, the founders intended the legislative branch in particular to check the executive branch, period, regardless of who the occupant was. And uh, he's right that the founders uh, did not envision parties, and it's not in the Constitution. And so one of the concerns that um, many people have had is that with parties, uh, members of Congress think more like teams and less like an independent uh, branch of the national government. And so when the president is of the same party uh, as the party that controls Congress, there's a, a, a distinct lack of oversight. Um, and this was not something that the founders intended at all. So, um, so I do think that that is a, a, a marked departure from what the founders intended. Now, in terms of midterm elections, I had mentioned some of the things that, uh, that I would say make them significant. And uh, in addition to the uh, change in party control, the size of the freshman class, and then if it leads to some significant change in American politics or policymaking or the way Congress operates. And we've seen that in uh, the 19th century. Um, and some of the ones that I would uh, identify as being significant because of one or more of those reasons would be uh, the midterm election of 1826. This is when you have uh, the decline of the uh, existing party system and the rise of what would become the Jacksonian Democrats. And uh, Andrew Jackson is elected president in 1828. But in 1826, you start to see members of Congress who are pro-Jacksonian or proto-Democrats, I guess you could say. And so this midterm is one of those examples of one that indicates a, a significant change in party, uh, the party system or in a presidential, uh, uh, the upcoming presidential election. Then you have a couple others I'll just mention uh, briefly. Um, the election of 1854, which is another example of a midterm, which is um, 
preceding some significant national changes. And this is one in which the Democrats lose control of the House, but uh, a new party, the Know Nothing Party, gains a sizable number of seats. They're an anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant party. And you end up having uh, a two-month period where the House cannot pick their speaker because it's the, the House is so divided among different factions. Um, and that is an early preview of what will come with the Civil War. Um, and then uh, after the Civil War in 1874, this is a big election because Democrats retake the House for the first time since the 1850s. Um, and it's also at the same time you have election-related race riots in Alabama. So you're seeing how in the South, um, Southern whites are, uh, and they've done it before, and they're doing it in this election, willing to use violence to suppress the black vote, which ends up helping them solidify uh, power in the South. Thank you very much for that. Tom, your thoughts on some of the 19th century elections that Matt flagged, including 26, the rise of the Jacksonian Democrats, 54, the rise of the Know Nothing, 74, the Democrats retaking the House. What do they say, these 19th century elections, about the fact that par once parties did arise after the election of 1800, they came to serve a function, an amalgamating function, that the framers hadn't anticipated? Uh, indeed. Uh, I think Matt's, uh, Matt's choices of, uh, of elections are very good. And what they what they tell us is is a couple of things. One, it's a opportunity to uh, for the public to weigh in on on how the course of American politics and presidential leadership is is proceeding. So over time, they've tended uh, they've tended to be referendums on on presidents and uh, the House in particular, so that. And, and because of uh, the fact that they follow up two years after a presidential victory, they, they almost always tend to lead to a loss of seats in the president's party. And one of the complaints of, typically is, uh, gee, you elect a parliamentary system and it's, it's together and there might be a four or five year term and absent that prime minister's loss of support in his own party, there's some element of stability there. In our system, at various periods of time, we've had one party elected into office in both the president and the Congress, and then two years later, uh, that unified party government gives way to divided party government. And, and, uh, and that's been a problematic in our history uh, ever since. I think it's it's important to acknowledge that midterm elections, as Matt said, both are indicators of of what's going on in our politics and what new forces are are arising. And certainly, the election of eighteen twenty six and the development of the mass political party with Jackson and Martin Van Buren uh, were were absolutely critical. But an election, a couple of things to think about. One, 1858. I mean, this was this was critical. The uh, the old Whigs were dying. The a new Republican Party had started up. The the faith in James Buchanan and the Democratic Party was uh, was sinking, and that election sort of set the stage for. Abraham Lincoln's election two years henceforth and and the secession of uh, 
of southern states. So it was it was immensely significant. And then uh, 1874, another election that uh, that Matt identified was was a period in 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 which the you know the grand ambitions of of Lincoln and 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 Grant and other other Republican Party leaders to deal with the problem of slavery and and race in American politics. That election basically uh, gave control to the Democrats who were against Reconstruction and effectively ended uh, uh, ended the the great experiment following uh, following the Civil War. So and then and then finally, I just uh, I I mentioned the election of uh, 1894 was was the featured the largest uh, loss of seats by the president par- president's party in American history, well over a hundred, uh, closer to 125 seats lost in a in a house that was uh, much smaller than it is uh, is now, and it really. Uh, set the stage for a period of dominance by uh, by the Republican Party after a very competitive period. So lots of passions in these elections. Um, party is an absolute significant uh, factor. The other thing, Jeff, I just introduced is a, is a last point. Again, one of the problematics is, is once we, we had sort of, if you will, mass public elections for the for the president, we have this problem that the electorate in presidential years is much different than the electorate in midterm years. It's usually a 20 percentage point decline in, in the midterm elections, very different composition. And, and so the question is, who speaks for America in the electoral cycle? Thank you very much for all of that, and thank you for flagging the election of 1894. And Matt, I'd like to ask you about that. As Tom said, it was a landslide defeat for the Democrats, 100 seats lost to the Republicans, the largest swing in history. It was also the first time that a party completely lost control of both houses of Congress, and it marked the end of the third party system of the Civil War and the beginning of the fourth party system known as the Progressive Era. And one of the causes of it was the tariff, which our listeners know from my endless references to William Howard Taft and his <laughs> taking on the tariff. But uh, the uh, issue of the tariff combined with the panic of 1893 led to this election. So wh- why was 1893 a realigning election? And what defines a realigning election? What factors uh, can help us identify whether a- an election is realigning or not? So um, there's a lot of debate in the uh, political science world about realignment, uh, realignment theory and how much evidence there is for it. Um, I would say the traditional definition of a realigning election is one in which you have a durable shift in um, the voting behavior of large numbers of uh, voting citizens. And that leads to a um, a change in the uh, which party is more dominant nationally. uh, And that party remains dominant more or less for a, a fairly long time. And so for many realignment, realigning uh, theories of re, theorists of realignment, 1894 and particularly 1896, the presidential election was realigning because the, as you said, the, the, the Republicans established this dominant majority in Congress and also 
the <coughs> the ability to win um, presidential elections fairly consistently. Um, it's certainly true whether you would argue it's a realigning election or not. As, as Tom said, that 1894 election was a huge shift in seats. Uh, uh, it was a massive defeat for the Democratic Party, and they never. Uh, it took them a long time to uh, to recover. They did not uh, gain control of either chamber until 1910, so uh, it was a long time in the minority, uh, and that, of course, established the ability of the Republicans. As we're talking about, the one of the reasons a midterm is significant is because of a durable shift in uh, what follows, with the Republicans having control of the, of the House and Senate and the White House. Uh, they were able to pursue a, a variety of policies that they couldn't uh, in the period before when you have swinging control uh, of Congress and, and also of the White House. Thanks very much for that. So, Tom, let's enter the 20th century. And the election of 1930 was significant. It followed the stock market crash. The GOP was severely punished. It was Herbert Hoover's first midterm, and the Democrats got 52 seats in the House and six in the Senate, although the GOP narrowly got control of both houses. So if that wasn't a realigning election, what was the realigning election of the 30s? And what, how would you define a realigning election? Yes, it's it certainly, uh, the, the seeds of it began in, uh, in, in 1930. Uh, in some ways, you could begin to see some changes as far back as uh, the 1928 election. What's significant uh, is that you know, because of deaths among some Republican members, the Democrats actually organized that House after the 1930 election and held it every Congress except for two in 46 and 52 until 1994. So it, would, it, it was the beginning of a permanent Democratic majority. Even in the Senate, there was a quarter-century stretch of uh, Democratic dominance in the Congress as well. So we had a long period of time in which Republicans became almost a permanent minority. And, and so I'd say that 30, 1930 is really important. It shows you the importance of the, the state of the of the economy, of course, it's uh, after the Great Depression and and uh, Hoover's uh, Hoover's approach to it. Franklin Roosevelt's success in in putting together a coalition, a New Deal coalition, it was an odd coalition uh, because, of course, it it uh, it included Northern liberals, uh, including some free blacks, as well as as white segregationist uh, in the South and and politically, uh, legislatively, during much of the period after Roosevelt's uh, enormous uh, legislative uh, strides, you you had Congress dominated by a conservative coalition of, uh, of Southern Democrats and. Uh, and the Republican minority. Uh, so that was a long period of time that, that really began in that 1930 election. And uh, it, it didn't end until much, much later when, when uh, Newt Gingrich succeeded in his effort to return Republicans to the majority in, in the House of Representatives. And now Republicans have, uh, have had more success in congressional elections uh, than Democrats. 
Many thanks for that. So, Matt, what are we to make of that long stretch between 1932 and 1994 when the Democrats held Congress? And there were some significant midterms within them, like 1958, where you had a weakened conservative coalition precipitating passage of the Civil Rights Act, 1966, eroding democratic control and stimming the Great Society, and 74, the first post-Watergate election. But were, were those just blips, or how, how would you characterize that long stretch of democratic dominance of Congress? Well, first, I would just uh, just to add to what Tom was saying about the 1930 election, I, I agree with him. It's um, significant in no small part because it was the beginning of this long dominance of the Democratic Party in Congress and in, in the Senate until 1980 and the House until 1994. I think it also is a good example of how sometimes it's hard to know what a midterm might portend because in 1930, Democrats, as Tom mentioned, were able to organize Congress or at least the House. But the party itself wasn't yet, I would argue, fully FDR's party. Uh, there were Democrats who actually felt the way to get out of the Great Depression was to cut government spending because that was the conventional wisdom. Um, as opposed to the Keynesian economics that the party ended up embracing, embracing later. So sometimes a midterm is very helpful to a party and maybe the beginning of their dominance, but it's not yet clear exactly the circumstances under which uh, their party will change or they'll become the dominant party. Now, as far as that stretch from 1930 to 32 uh, until 1980 in the Senate, 1994 in the House, I do think there are significant uh, midterms within that stretch, and it would be a mistake to just say that nothing changed and nothing was important until uh, the end. Take, for example, uh, I, the, the midterm that I would point to as one would be that midterm of 1958, when the uh, Democrats have a majority in the House and Senate, but it's a year in which uh, a lot of new members are elected, the new Democrats, and the size of the majority that the Democrats have, particularly in the House, grows. And it actually establishes something of a floor for their um, for their for the number of seats they have. I think from 1957 until 1994, they always had at least 55 percent of the seats in the House, for instance. Um, and so I think it was an important election in further establishing the Democratic Party's dominance. Before then, it looked like it was a more competitive uh, Congress between the Republicans and Democrats. They'd swung back and forth in control. As you mentioned, 1946 and uh, 1952. But that 1958 brought in these younger, liberal, uh, more liberal Democrats who were there for a long time and also pursued uh, a series of reforms in Congress um, that ultimately changed uh, and changed the institution. Thank you so much for that. In a moment, we the people will be back with more constitutional conversations after this brief message. do you have to say about all of those elections between 1930 and 32 and 1994? Which ones would you call out as significant? And to what degree did they presage a preview of the of the shift that would culminate and change control of the House in 94? Many things, as Matt said, uh, were going on. You were, you were seeing really the the birth of the modern Republican Party, starting uh, without gaining power immediately in 
in sort of elite politics and then Goldwater's candidacy and and building slowly from that. But it, it took decades before Republicans succeeded in in uh, in winning a majority uh, uh, in the House. The Democratic Party at the same time was uh, changing as the 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 changes in the broader society were were leading to to big uh, shifts in the South, uh, an area of the country that was a solid block for the Democrats and most responsible for their long term majority in uh, in the in the Congress. But after the the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, you began to see a uh, a sorting in the in the party's uh, regional realignment, Democratic liberals, who, as Matt said, really began forcefully in the 1958 election, were working hard within Congress to keep the the Southern Democrats who'd been there forever and chaired the committees from dominating the the legislative agenda and. The class of 1974 provided the extra numbers for a series of uh, procedural changes, but uh, this was, uh, you know, this was then uh, succeeded by uh, the arrival of Newt Gingrich in Congress in in 1978 and the beginning of a 16-year guerrilla war to try to put the Republicans back in the majority. Uh, things were changing in the, in the country. We saw a differentiate, ideological differentiation of, of the parties. There was more agreement within each party and greater distance uh, uh, between them. Uh, it became a more important identity, and it took a while for, for that to reach full uh, blossom in the uh, in the 21st century when when party uh, has come to to really mean hyper partisanship and tribalism and strong identities and the nationalization of politics which has changed in some respects the the character of uh, of, uh, of midterm elections and their uniqueness. Now we have a a permanent campaign, uh, indeed a permanent war. Um, senators are uh, are no uh, less immune to the the partisan forces than members of the House are, and it uh, uh, it it's come to the point where where someone like Donald Trump, uh, unimaginable as a president when he first emerged, uh, has, has now sort of seized on opportunities presented by changes in the Republican Party, I'd say, since uh, the Tea Party movement and, and made it a Donald Trump's party. Uh, which has led to disaffection of Republican intellectual, conservative intellectuals, but not not of the sort of the voters, the mass public uh, in uh, in the party, and and put us now in a really really dangerous stage. You know, the, there's there is Jeff, I'd say a a mismatch between 
between our Constitution and our party system. A highly polarized and indeed tribalized system in which one party doesn't accept the legitimacy of the other and and campaigning is war. Um, And it doesn't matter what you say, it matters how you feel. Uh, among voters has put us in a really dangerous period in our in our politics. So it's been a fascinating evolution with midterms playing an important historical role in various of of the, certainly Obama's election was followed by the election of of 2010, a wipeout for the for the Republican uh, Party that that has uh, has put it uh, in a, you know, in really a dominant, uh, a dominant position, and the question, and they have become uh, basically enablers of uh, of Donald Trump. The question now becomes is, is whether in 2018 we will see, we will see a return to divided party government, or, or whether we will have what is in many respects a minority party in terms of the popular vote for the president, the Senate and the House, but one that has, uh, that has really seized power and is set on maintaining and extending it. Thank you very much for that very provocative statement. Appropriate for the We the People podcast, uh, Tom Mann has claimed that there is now a mismatch between our Constitution and our party system. We are now in a highly tribalized system in which one party doesn't accept the legitimacy of the other, a hyper-partisanship the founders would not have recognized. Matt, first of all, and most importantly, do you agree or not with that statement? And regardless of your answer, then take us back to 94, because you're writing a book about Newt Gingrich. To what degree was the election of 94 and the changes in Congress that followed from it important in contributing to this hyper-partisanship? And then maybe before we get to 2018, take us up a little from 94 to 2010 or so and describe why you think that this hyper-partisanship accelerated. Yeah, well, first of all, I agree completely with Tom. Um, and I think the, the the reasons for it, the origins are complicated. Uh uh, it's difficult to tease out all the different things that have contributed to the political environment we're in now. But um, absolutely, you see uh, certainly in Congress, um, and depending on uh, how you measure it uh, among voters as well, um, very, very strong, if not hyper-partisanship, and uh, a sense that the other party is not just a group of people that you disagree with, but is actually a, a separate team that you simply want nothing to do with. Um, and uh, I'm happy to talk more about how we got to that uh, place today. Um, going back to the election of 1994 was uh, obviously highly significant because the Democrats lost control of the House for the first time in 40 years and uh, and also lost control of the Senate. Um, I actually, as it happened, I was working on Capitol Hill uh, when that election happened. Uh, and uh, I like to, to tell the story of how you, that was the day after the election you knew you could tell uh, just by walking the halls of uh, the House office buildings which party people belonged to because they were either completely jubilant or um, uh, looked like they were about to, uh, to uh, you know, someone in their family just passed away. So um, it was a it tremendously, uh, it was a huge election. You can't understate its influence on, uh, on Congress. Um, 
And obviously Gingrich, who had been this minority party rabble rouser, had by then become the minority whip and uh, then became Speaker of the House after that election. Um, and part of, I think, where how we got to where we are today was the fact that Gingrich was resented by so many Democrats for the kinds of tactics that he had used in the minority and, uh, and wanted to um, exact revenge, to be perfectly honest, uh, and did not feel particularly inclined to cooperate with Gingrich. Uh, and for the Republicans' part, they saw him as the, as, you know, the, their messiah. They had brought the, him control, he had brought them control of the House. Um, and that there was a sense that 1994 was a mandate from voters, both the House and the Senate, to pursue more conservative policy. Um, uh, and so it was a, an environment that was ripe for a partisan conflict. Another thing to point out too, Francis Lee at uh, University of Maryland has, has pointed out that when you have a smaller margins between the two parties or a sense that you could easily win back control of uh, your chamber in an election, you have less incentive to cooperate with the other party. And that can uh, also feed partisan conflict and so the Republicans won control of Congress in 1994, but their margins were very small. Uh, and many Democrats, once they got over being in the minority, saw this as uh, you know, every election had was of tremendous stakes, and you could not give an inch, inch to the other party. And when Republicans became a minority party in 2006, uh, they arguably adopted the same philosophy. And so that way of approaching governance, because you think you're that close to winning control of Congress, makes every election, midterms and presidential, uh, high stakes. Many thanks for that. All right, the question is set, and we want to use our remaining time to understand why this tribalism and hyperpartisanship transformed Congress and whether the elections were symptoms or causes of the partisanship. Tom, you've written, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the world expert on this, and in The Broken Branch, you describe a series of changes within Congress uh, that have contributed and been caused by hyperpartisanship, ranging from decline in institutional identity, indifference to reform, disappearance of oversight, and the decline of regular order and other factors. So a very broad question, but what are some of the main factors that you believe contributed to the rise of this hyperpartisanship between the election of 94 and today? Uh, good question. And as Matt indicated, it's not simple. <laughs> it's very complicated. Uh, figuring out, did, did the change begin in Congress among, among party elites, which in turn reshaped the orientations and loyalties and identities of the of, of voters? Or, or did it emerge from uh, from the public, and and that was then reflected in in changes in Congress. It, what I, what I'll say is this: I am a great believer in in the importance of not just elected officials, but but party activists and officials and and central interest group leaders who work hard for years to try to build coalitions that will sustain, produce, and sustain majorities in, in legislatures and, and in winning uh, the presidency and gubernatorial uh, uh, seats. And so these efforts were, had been underway for many years. I, if I had to single one thing out, it would be race. When, when, when support among African Americans was shared by the two parties, it uh, 
it tended to remove one of the historically important sources of conflict uh, uh, in American uh, politics. But following the, the uh, uh, if you will, the second reconstruction and uh, the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act and and mobilization of uh, of blacks, the 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 party sorted on this question, and then other issues having having to do with abortion and religion ended up being important, and a and a sort of coalition in each party was uh, was developed. There was more agreement in the parties, therefore they were willing members in Congress willing to uh, delegate power to their leaders so that they could deliver and win legislative victories, which they hoped would help subsequent uh, uh, electoral victories. So it's a combination that Newt Gingrich was uniquely important, but it wasn't him. He seized some opportunities. He was in in some ways, very hard nosed. It was it was about power and and it was about destroying the enemy, which uh, then became which became the Democrats. Gingrich, who began as a Rockefeller moderate Republican, saw where the opportunity was and uh, and and he took it. Right now, Jeff, uh, the problem is that we don't have the overlapping interests that the framers counted that a large republic would produce. That is, we may disagree on this, but we agree on that. And when you have the possibility of agreement across parties, then it's, uh, you have different procedures within the institution and you have a market for bargaining, negotiation, and compromise. But when the major interests identify with one or the other parties, then you strengthen the importance of party in the electorate, and and that then appears in in Congress, in in the policymaking process, which in turn acts to further uh, polarize uh, the public, and that's the the cycle we've been on in. Uh, in recent uh, in recent years, and and as I've said, uh, I can't help but think if the if the framers <laughs> were here today, they'd say, "Oh my God, this system isn't well suited to to manage the kind of tribal identities and loyalties." I mean, they're. There was news uh, recently of, uh, of pipe bombs being sent to, to former presidents, and, and uh, it's it's the outbreaks of violence. Um, there's a perception now of minority rule. Two out of five presidential elections have uh, uh, have seen the the victor. Uh, because of a majority in the electoral college actually losing the popular vote, and and of course the 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 apportionment of the Senate two per state means that a uh, a relatively uh, small proportion, certainly a minority of the public living in 
states uh, have approved and can approve uh, legislation uh, in the Senate. So we're 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 really coming up, I think, against a crisis, and it's all occurring at a time of of the rise of, uh, of populism. Uh, initially, with Hugo Chavez on the left, now overwhelmingly on the right, and and we're having it here in America, and outbreaks of of xenophobia and and racism, and it's. Uh, uh, it's identity politics, and it's ugly, and, and Congress is not doing, it's acting like a parliamentary body in, uh, in many respects, uh, and it's not at all doing the kind of refining of the public views that uh, Madison had in mind. Many thanks for all of those illuminating thoughts. Matt, I'm so eager for your analysis of how we have arisen to a state of tribalism that, as Tom says, the framers would have aboard. In 1960, there was a 50% overlap between the most conservative Democrat and most liberal Republican. Today, there is no overlap. We are more polarized, according to some scholars, than at any time since the end of the Civil War. And there is less of the aggregation of interests that the parties served for much of the 19th and 20th century. Tom has identified a series of factors, including racial self-sorting, ideological self-sorting. What other factors would you add and, and tell us also what you think about geographic self-sorting and, and its relevance to this puzzle? So, I, I, Thomas, uh, I, I agree with Tom completely about uh, the self-sorting that's going on with interests. Um, the role of race is, uh, is a very important uh, explanation as well. And... Um, I think uh, part of the uh, another factor, and I think in these these all sort of interact with each other. Um, this idea that the parties do need to all agree on one thing and disagree with the other party on those things, and I don't know if it's um, you know our party leaders and members of Congress who did this or voters. It was one of the things actually that Gingrich wanted to do uh, from the get-go. Is he was uh, he felt that you couldn't win elections as a party unless you had clear, distinct differences from the other party. Uh, and this was in effect telling moderates in his party, you can be moderate, but we all have to agree on the same thing in terms of a national agenda. Um, whether that is responsible or, um, or others, that's certainly what you see uh, nationally in other parties uh, making clear, distinct differences. And that means that if I um, agree with you on one thing, but disagree with you on another, uh, where do I fit in that? I have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. That that certainly lends itself to increased uh, polarization and and conflict. And as uh, Tom mentioned, it can it can actually become violent. Um, I think communication methods of communication and gathering and um, the way we receive information uh, as citizens is also very important. So that um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, everyone was reading from the same general sources and watching the same. Um, sources on television, but now uh, you know when I'm in a, in a classroom and teaching, I don't know where my students are getting their information. They may be getting it from websites uh, like you know from newspapers like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, or they could be reading blogs that simply tell them what they already want to hear, and that would further reinforce this polarization that happens in the public. Um, and of course, you have to be sure that the information you're gathering is accurate, and it isn't always uh, the case that it is. In terms of, you mentioned the geographic um, 
uh, silo or sort of geographic sorting that's going on, uh, or as it's been called the big sort. This is also contributing to, I think, polarization, particularly in the House of Representatives, because members are elected from individual districts that are drawn from states. Um, and so if folks of one political persuasion prefer to live, say, in cities, and those of the opposite prefer to live in suburbs or in rural areas, then when districts are drawn for uh, members of the, the House of Representatives, then you may end up with districts that have mostly people of one party or mostly people of the other. You couple that with gerrymandering, districts that are drawn by states, uh, legislatures to get a certain outcome. And then you end up with a situation where more members of Congress are worried about losing a primary than they are losing a general election. And so they're concerned about being out-conservative or out-liberaled, and therefore they themselves move further to the left or right. And that exacerbates the polarization that you see in Congress. So I think all of these factors um, are contributing to the situation that we're in today. And I would just note, in terms of historical parallels, um, some mentioned the Civil War. I would also mention the late 19th century, uh, where we also had periods of presidents getting elected with a minority of the vote, as in 1876 and 1888. So a, a similar situation where you have two, two parties struggling with each other, fighting with each other, uh, and no clear majority uh, of, of, of the country in favor of one party or the other. Many thanks for that. All right, now we've had a fine and helpful discussion of some of the causes of polarization from race to ideological, geographic, and virtual self-sorting and the accompanying institutional changes. Tom, what does all this tell us about the midterm elections of 2018? Are we now in a new situation where the kind of wave elections, which required a loss of at least 30 seats in the past, there have been nine such wave elections since 1932, are less likely or, or more likely because of polarization? Are there 19th century analogs uh, at similarly polarized times, or are we in new territory? Um, that is uh, the question of the day. Uh, the swings have, have tended to be smaller in part because more of the districts in the House and more of the states are lopsided in their partisan uh, identities. And, and therefore, even a swing of, say, 10% of the electorate can't produce anything like the election of 1874 or going back to periods around the New Deal and even under Truman. So yes, the, the swings tend to be smaller. The playing field is reduced. It's also the case that we now have party line voting that's almost perfect. That is, we perfect in the sense of almost complete unity. Uh, we're, we'll get above 90%, maybe approaching, you know, 92, 93, 94% of Democrats voting for Democratic candidates for Congress and similarly for, uh, for Republicans. It's true there are a lot of independents, but most of those independents lean uh, toward one of the parties and, uh, and support the party. There are fewer genuine swing voters and those who exist tend to be the least informed without attachments that would lead to uh, the gathering of information. And so 
what you have now is a is a struggle. The, the playing field in the Senate is especially small this year because there's a lopsided array of uh, Republicans, only nine seats up compared to 25 Democratic seats. And many of, the, of those Democratic seats are in red states, or at least in states that Trump carried. So you have now an enormous focus, a national fundraising effort underway trying to affect the balance of power, as, as uh, Matt said in referencing Francis Lee, are there may be more safe seats in the House and the Senate, but the national competition for control is is intense. The margins are very narrow, and and so you have money moving around the country targeted to those particular states and enormous effort to ride or hold back a, a wave. So that's that's part of the structure of our politics, but it's been made more significant just because of the rise of, of Donald Trump. He didn't come out of nowhere. It's uh, He's similar to to would-be autocrats in other countries around the world. And and he he wrote on some of the grievances that the public had and that and that Republicans encouraged uh, during their majority in Congress. But it's 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 a little nerve-wracking. The stakes are higher than the election would normally be, even under this intense polarization. If uh, if if Trump were a more sort of conventional uh, president, if he if he had a little more respect for the truth, and and uh, it, you could you could imagine healthy competition and and uh, potential swing or not that would have significant policy consequences, but the legitimacy of the democratic system would still be alive. we I mean, the worry now is, uh, is, is could we even inadvertently slip into a much more autocratic system where the rule of law is respected much less, where, where the passions are strong, where, um, where violence breaks out? Uh, it's, it's, it's a very unnerving time. That's why prominent uh, Republican uh, intellectuals like Max Boot and and George Will and and others are saying, "Hey, this is this is a crisis of democracy. Vote Democratic. It's only to elect a chamber a, a chamber of the House that provides some some check on a demagogue who's now occupying the White House because the." His party, the Republican Party, has demonstrated their their interests lie elsewhere. Um, so it makes for a doubly important midterm election. Thank you so much for that. Matt, last word to you. Given the increase in tribalization and polarization, is the election of 2018 sui generis, or are there historic analogs? And do you agree or disagree with Tom's thoughts about the significance of the president? And how can we put the 2018 elections in historic perspective? So there's a way in which the 2018 elections, it 
obviously depends what happens. If, um, as many prognosticators um, have argued, the minority party, the Democrats, will do well in the House, if not the Senate, maybe even take control of the House. Uh, there's a, you know, on one level, this is just a a, 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 a kind of standard model of midterms, uh, which I think Tom mentioned before, which is a, a referendum on the party in power. Uh, and we have seen that. We saw that in 2010. We saw it in 1994, 2006, that the, um, if the public is unhappy with the, uh, the party in power, they uh, vote for the other party and that party wins control of the House uh, or in some cases uh, and or in some cases the Senate. I think in, uh, in this upcoming election, what's one of the most remarkable things about it is that there is a gap between people's general partisan leaning in this election or their satisfaction and the state of the economy. The economy is actually doing quite well, and yet you see um, far more Republicans in danger of losing this election than you would expect. And this could mean that the 2018 midterms are a much greater referendum on the president than one would normally expect given the state of the economy. And if that's the case, then I think it does suggest some of the things that Tom was talking about, that uh, there's uh, a, a lot of folks, particularly on the left, who are very upset. President Trump, he's a, in some ways a very, very polarizing figure, a controversial figure, certainly gets a lot of more media coverage, I think, than, than past presidents have in this stage in their presidency. And if that's the case, this could be a, an example of a kind of hyper-referendum on the president. I think also there's something bigger going on here, which is that both parties are facing some significant pressures from different factions that are um, in danger of sort of pulling them into different directions. So the Republican Party, for instance, the you know Donald Trump is not your typical Republican by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and he's advocated for policies that some Republicans like and, and others do not. The Democratic Party, we saw in the last presidential election, being pulled off in a more progressive direction in the sort of the Bernie Sanders faction or um, wing of the party, if you will. And this is very important because if we have a system in which political parties are dominant, despite what the founding fathers wanted, but they are unable to maintain a degree of unity, then we're in a, a particular uh, moment of flux and uncertainty. And this 2018 midterm that we're facing could further exacerbate that. It could pull the parties in different directions. It, it's just very hard to predict. And so that's what makes this an exciting time. For some, it's a unnerving time. But I do think that the there's good reasons to expect that the 2018 midterms for these and other reasons will go down in history as one of the more significant in, uh, in many decades. Thank you so much, Matthew Green and Tom Mann, for an illuminating, historically deep, and fascinating discussion of the history and constitutional significance of midterm elections. Tom, Matt, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Madison Poulter, and Jackie McDermott. 
We the People listeners, I'm delighted that we've relaunched our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. This is the feed where we play the audio from all of our incredible town hall programs here in Philadelphia and around the country with authors like Michael Beschloss and Doris Kearns Goodwin, judges, scholars, debates. It's a veritable constitutional feast, and I hope you'll check it out and enjoy listening to them as much as we are honored to produce them. Uh, That's available on Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever else you listen. And remember, we the people listeners, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. Our programming and educational light is only possible to spread because of the engagement and passion and commitment of people like you around the country committed to lifelong learning. There's nothing more fulfilling in life as an adult than continuing to learn and grow. And we the people is a part of that opportunity for lifelong constitutional education. So please consider becoming a member of the National Constitution Center to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.